Winston Churchill, great uh, English-British leader uh, during the time of World War II, uh, who was really in many ways one of the great uh, minds and consolidators of energy and effort in uh, defeating uh, the the Nazi progress and um, and uh, and conquering that had taken place through Europe, once said, "You have enemies. Good. That means you have stood up for something sometime in your life." Uh, Winston Churchill had many enemies, uh, not just on the field of battle, but, uh, but in the political realm and other places in his life also. And he speaks truth here. If you have enemies, that means you have probably stood up for something sometime in your life and somebody somewhere didn't like it, disagreed with you, even opposed you where you were. We find as we come to Ezra 4 and the people of God returning from exile in Babylon to the city of Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, we find them here in chapter 4 encountering opposition, opposition against which they must stand and, uh, and in which they will be making some enemies. They will come face to face with some adversaries. In Ezra 4, as the returnees begin to rebuild the temple there in Jerusalem, they are met with what we find to be persistent, debilitating opposition from the surrounding syncretistic people. And when I say syncretistic, I mean this, people that uh, lived uh, around the city of Jerusalem uh, these uh, 500 or years before Jesus, who uh, worshipped false gods and also worshipped the God of Israel as one among many gods. They syncretized worship. And the opposition that these surrounding people uh, give uh, to the people, of Jeru- the people in Jerusalem, those rebuilding the temple, will continue with varying levels of success throughout the entire course of, uh, of building the temple, which was completed in 515 BC, uh, and even through the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem, which we read about in the, uh, the book of the Bible, uh, Nehemiah, which follows Ezra. What I want us to see this morning as we continue in this uh, idea of seeing how God rebuilds his people uh, in the course of Ezra is this, that, that God, the God of Israel, Yahweh by his personal name, rebuilds his people for faithfulness to him. It's the reason he rebuilds them. A faithfulness which will often be tested, is often tested, by outside forces and opposition. And as we see the people of Israel, these returning exiles, deal with opposition today and see how God is rebuilding his people even even through the testing by opposition, I would hope that we would gain and intend to give for us a simple framework that we as followers of Christ can use to maintain faithfulness to God's mission for us, his church, his people today. We'll get to that here in just a moment. Before we do, let's read God's word together. Would you stand with me as we honor God by reading his word? Ezra chapter 4, we'll read the whole chapter today. Ezra the priest and the continued inspiration of the Holy Spirit continues his history of the returnees from exile saying this, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the father's houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah, and they made them afraid to build. 
And they bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithridath and Tabil and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rehum the commander and Shimshai the scribe wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes the king as follows. Rehum the commander, Shimshai the scribe, the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persians, the men of Erek, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnipper deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. This is a copy of the letter that they sent. To Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They're rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace... And it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor. Therefore, we send and inform the king in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this, is a, that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from, old, from of old. That was why the city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river. The king, Artaxerxes, sent an answer. To Rehum the commander and Shimshai the scribe and the rest of the associates who live in Samaria and the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting. And now the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me. And I made a decree and search has been made. And it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem who ruled over the whole province beyond the river to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to hurt to the hurt of the king? Then when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai, the scribe, and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem, and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped. And it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. God, would you open our hearts this morning to hear from you as we study your word and apply it to our lives. Let us do so diligently, faithfully, in keeping with the truth of your word. Holy Spirit, help us in this, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a lot going on in Ezra chapter 4. But there is one thing, one theme that stands out uh, above the rest. There's a lot that we could deal with in Ezra 4, but this is the main idea that I think that uh, Ezra is showing to us in this chapter and intending for the readers of this history to understand, and that is this, that opposition challenges the faithfulness of God's people. It's as simple as that. Opposition challenges the faithfulness of God's people. 
This much is true. When God builds a people, as he is, as he's rebuilding his people here in Ezra, as they're returning, his people are returning from God's discipline and exile in Babylon, it is God who builds them. It is God who builds them around the right and deserved worship of himself. We saw that last week in Ezra chapter 3. And it is God who builds his people for faithfulness, for steadfastness, for perseverance to him and to his call upon their lives. The call on the lives of those who are returning to Jerusalem from exile, here in Ezra 4, the call on their lives is to rebuild the temple where the presence of God will dwell among his people as he is rightly worshipped by them. That is the task that is before them, rebuild the temple. But in verse 1 of chapter 4, we find that there are some in the surrounding area around Jerusalem who oppose the work of God among his people. Ezra helps us by rightly identifying their motives, even before we hear from these people. He calls them adversaries. He labels them for what they are. These are people who are opposing the work of God in Jerusalem. So whatever happens next in Ezra 4, we know that these adversaries are disingenuous, that they are seeking to undermine the work of God through his people there. These adversaries, Ezra tells us, come along and they offer to help the returning exiles in rebuilding the temple. It seems like a kind offer. Hey, listen, we, uh, we've been worshiping God just like you have ever since the Assyrians brought us from other places of the world to this place. Let us help you in this effort. But in response to this offer of help, Zerubbabel, Jeshua, the other leaders among the people who have returned, they send these adversaries away, saying essentially, this is none of your business. They say, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. Wait a minute, you say. These, these supposed adversaries say that they've been worshiping God, just like the Jews had been ever since the Assyrians had resettled them there in Palestine from other places of the world. What's the big deal? Isn't this a, a, a good offer of help? There's got people coming along that want to build the house of God. Why would you tell them no? We return to the history of the people of Israel, the divided kingdom of Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Look at 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 24 and following, and we find there in 2 Kings that when the Assyrians, those people who conquered first the northern kingdom of Israel and sent them, uh, dispersed them throughout the Assyrian empire, uh, the Assyrians send, uh, not just take the, the Israelites and send them all over the Assyrian empire, but the Assyrians also take conquered peoples from other places in the empire and they settle them there in the northern, former northern kingdom of, of, of Israel, also called Samaria. And that as these people from other places of the world are settled in Samaria by the conquering Assyrians, they bring their idolatry with them. They bring their worship to false, uh, to, of false gods with them to Samaria. And in so doing, we read in 2 Kings 17 that God himself starts pouring out his anger on the land and the people now living in uh, Samaria at the end of, or in the middle of 2 Kings because of their worship of false gods. And he begins to send plagues upon the people there. In response, the Assyrians commanded priests from Israel to return to Samaria to teach the people who had been resettled there how to worship Yahweh so that the plagues would stop. The priests do this. They go back to Samaria. This is, again, before the southern kingdom of Judah is carried off into exile in Babylon. But the priests return to the northern kingdom of Israel, to that land called Samaria. They teach the resettled people there how to worship Yahweh and and how he is to be uh, worshipped. They tell them to put away their other gods, uh, but the people there don't. 
They begin worshiping Yahweh, but they just uh, uh, start to worship him as one among many of their other gods. So we read in 2 Kings 17.33, The people of Samaria feared the Lord, but they also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. These adversaries that we meet in Ezra chapter 4, verse 1, are those people who, who returned or who were settled by the Assyrians in Samaria, who intermingled with other pagan peoples and the remainder of the Israelites who lived there, uh, interming, not only intermarrying, but also, also intermingling their worship of false gods alongside the worship of the one true God, the God of Israel. Indeed, this is the very reason uh, for the fall of Israel and Judah in the first place. That's why God caused them to be destroyed by surrounding nations and carried into exile because they had forsaken true worship, right worship of God and him only and began to worship other gods alongside him. So here in Ezra 4, the leaders of the rebuilding effort, Zerubbabel, Jeshua, the heads of the houses there, they deny the help of those who, of these adversaries who would pose a threat to the faithful worship of God in his house because they have shown by their own history a pattern of perverting the worship of God and polluting it with syncretistic worship of false gods. The task of rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem in Ezra is for those who are faithful to God alone. And recognizing this, Zerubbabel, Jeshua, the other leaders of the houses, look to those who are not faithful to God alone, but who are worshiping other gods alongside the worship of the God of Israel. And they say, because you don't worship truly, you have no part in this worshipful task of rebuilding the temple with us. They refuse the help of the adversaries. And for their refusal, the returnees receive calculated, premeditated, threatening, and well-organized opposition from these adversaries. The adversaries frighten the returning exiles. They bribe governors and counselors to shut off supply lines and successfully shut down the temple rebuilding for nearly 20 years, as verse 24 tells us, from the reign of Cyrus to the reign of Darius. When we arrive to verse 6, that's essentially what's happening in verses 1 through 5. They get an offer of help from the surrounding people. Uh, Zerubbabel, Jeshua say, no, thank you very much. This is for a work of uh, this. This work is for those who are faithful to God alone. And then opposition begins to come. And then we get to verse six and things get a little bit strange for us. When we arrive to verse six, we get to some odd matters of chronology from verses five through seven. Ezra will mention four different Persian Kings and the opposition to the work in Jerusalem that occurred over the course of many years, even decades. It can be confusing to us when we read about these kings and a letter that's uh, sent to King Ahasuerus in verse 6 and then another letter to King Artaxerxes. And then we get to verse 24 about the continuation of the work uh, on the temple in the second year of Darius. So let me try to help clear up uh, the matter of chronology and what it is that Ezra is doing in his letter here. You have uh, in your worship guide... On that note sheet, kind of a timeline of Persian kings when they reigned and the events in Ezra that, uh, that relate to each of these Persian kings. We start with Cyrus, king of Persia, who came to power in 539 BC. He ruled until 530 BC. He was the king who ordered, who allowed the return of the exiles uh, in Persia back to Jerusalem and, uh, and, and gave decree that the foundation of the, that the temple begin to be rebuilt. It's during his reign in 537, 536 BC that the foundation of the temple is laid again. We read about that in uh, Ezra chapters 1 through 3. 
And then, continuing in the reign of Cyrus, shortly after the foundation is laid, work on the temple stops because of the opposition from these adversaries. After Cyrus died, uh, King Cambyses uh, took uh, reign in Persia, and he reigned for eight or so years, from 530 B.C. to 522 B.C. Cambyses is not mentioned anywhere in the narrative of Ezra, and not because Ezra didn't know about him, but because Ezra probably didn't have anything of substance to say about Cambyses. Nothing really changed in Cambyses' reign uh, from the end of Cyrus's reign, and we just know that throughout uh, the entire reign of Cambyses, work on the temple was halted. It had stopped. It wasn't going anywhere. Then we get to Darius the first. Some of you probably want to say Darius, and I listened to a, a, a history podcast about the kings of Persia a while ago, and the guy who's narrating the podcast calls him Darius, and so now it's just stuck in my head to say Darius. You can call him Darius if you want, that's just fine. But Darius began reigning in, as king of Persia in 522 BC, and he reigned until 486 BC, a fairly lengthy reign for a Persian king. And, the, and under his reign, the temple rebuilding would continue in the second year of his reign, as verse 24 of, uh, of Ezra chapter 4 tells us. So the temple work was halted from 536 B.C. till about 520 B.C. Nothing happened in terms of rebuilding the temple for almost 16 years. We read about the rebuilding that continues in Ezra chapter 6, verses 1 through 12. And the temple is ultimately completed in 515 B.C. So once they start working again, they finish it in about four or five years, and we read about that in Ezra 6 also. Then, following Darius, was the Persian king Ahasuerus, or as we know him better, Xerxes, from the Bible book of Esther, chapter 1. Ahasuerus is the king who is mentioned in verse 6 of chapter 4, and he reigned from 486 to 465 B.C. And during his reign, we read in Ezra 4, verse 6, that there was opposition to the work of the people uh, in Jerusalem again. There was a letter that was even written to Ahasuerus that Ezra tells us was, uh, was written and sent, but Ezra doesn't give us the content of that letter. And then after Ahasuerus died, Artaxerxes I took the throne in Persia, and he reigned from 464 to 423 B.C. And it was during Artaxerxes that opposition and accusation was made against the returned exiles, stopping them from rebuilding, but not from rebuilding the temple. You see, the temple had already been finished in 515 BC. But even now, 50 years or so later, the people who had returned to Jerusalem are trying to rebuild the wall around the city. They're trying to rebuild the city itself there in Jerusalem. And they're continuing over the course of like 80 years to be oppressed by the surrounding people, opposed by the surrounding people. Opposition that continues from Cyrus to Cambyses, through Darius, through Ahasuerus, and even into Artaxerxes' reign. So what is happening here in Ezra chapter 4 with all of these kings and this strange chronology? I think that what we have here from verses 6 through 23 of Ezra 4 is a, a parenthesis of sorts, wherein Ezra is illustrating the kind of opposition that the returning exiles had faced under the reign of Cyrus. It was the same kind of opposition that was experienced over the course of eight decades as the returning exiles sought to rebuild the temple and the wall around Jerusalem. Now, Ezra himself would not return to Jerusalem until the reign of Artaxerxes in 458 B.C., uh, about 65, almost 70 years after the temple had already been finished. And so the letter that Ezra is citing for us uh, here from uh, verses 7 through 23, the letter to Artaxerxes, is probably the best record that he had access to that would illustrate the pattern of opposition that had been faced by his people for decades in that city. 
The kind of opposition that tested and challenged the faithfulness of God's people as he rebuilt them, as he sought to rebuild a people for his glory, for his fame, for his worship in that city. And here's the point that Ezra helps to illustrate in all of chapter 4. Whether it's the Hebrews of the Old Testament, even Christians today, true and exclusive faithfulness to God and to his mission for his people will find opposition in this world. There's a lot that we could dig into in Ezra chapter 4, but that's the big idea. If God's people are faithful to him, they will experience opposition and difficulty in this world from people who are opposed to God's call on our lives. If there's anything that I want us to come away from this morning from Ezra chapter 4 and the, the faithfulness that we see tested among God's people here by the opposition from surrounding people is this. To be a follower of Christ to be part of God's people, to be a member of his family, is to be single-minded in our faithfulness to him. To be a follower of Christ is to be single-minded in our faithfulness to him. In the kingdom of God and the people of God, there are no double agents. There are no halfway committed members of Christ's body. So in coming to Christ, in being a Christian, in being part of the family of God, we have to count the cost of discipleship. Don't you think that the People of Israel were counting the cost of following and in faithfulness to God here in Ezra 4 as they're being opposed by surrounding peoples? Certainly. Over 80 years, they're having to count the cost of faithfulness year by year, decade by decade, asking, is this still worth it? Every time we lay a brick, we lay a stone, we put a pillar up, we're getting opposed by all these people around us. They're making our life miserable. Oughtn't we to just quit? Perhaps as Christians, we're tempted to ask the same question. Every time I try to share the gospel with someone who doesn't know it, a family member, a particular friend, I'm, I'm challenged, I'm opposed by it. Every time I, I, I even pray in silence over my lunch at work in the lunchroom, people are jeering and pointing at me. Every time I, I try to talk about the gospel with my unbelieving husband or unbelieving wife, there's, there's just tension in our relationship. Is it even worth it? To be a follower of Christ, to be a member of God's people, is to be single-minded in our devotion and faithfulness to Him, in spite of whatever opposition we may face in this life. Dear friends, it is not easy to be a Christian. We ought to expect to find ourselves making or encountering adversaries in our lives as we follow Christ. There is a cost to following Jesus. Jesus Himself warns us of this, warns those who sought to follow him of this. We read in Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62, these words. As they were going along, Jesus and his disciples and the rest of the crowd with him, someone said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, Jesus turned and said, you follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. The understanding here being that his father has not yet died. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me say farewell to those at my home. First, let me take care of business back at my house. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Friends, here the cost and understand the costly nature of discipleship to Jesus, of following Christ. It is costly. 
It costs you things in this world. And he calls us, Christ calls us to place faith in him as the one who died for our sins and rose from the dead, who makes us right with God to give our all to him, to be single-minded in our devotion and faithfulness to him in spite of opposition, in spite of adversaries, in spite of those who may pressure us to shut up about Jesus, to stop sharing. Christ says, no, you follow me. No one, puts his hand, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus does not mince words when it comes to what it means to be a disciple, to be a follower of Jesus. There are no halfway committed followers of Christ. There are only those who are committed and those who are not. There are no accidental Christians. There are only those who by faith are following Christ every day and those who are not. Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, but to bring a sword. And by that, he does not mean that he comes to wage war on the earth. But when he comes speaking the gospel in truth, that to know him, to love him, is to follow him exclusively, that divides people. It divides between those who are fully committed to Christ and those who are not. Between those who really do trust him as Lord and Savior and and those who are happy only to be just affiliated with him. God's people in Ezra 4 faced opposition. Opposition that challenged their faithfulness to God, whether or not they would continue doing the work that God had called them to do. We who are Christians today must answer that call to faithfulness to God, faithfulness to Christ with the same sort of single-minded devotion that Jesus calls us to and we would hope to have seen from the Israelites in Ezra 4. So what then are some more, Christ, uh, more lessons for the Christian from Ezra chapter 4? The big idea is this. Opposition challenges the faithfulness of God's people. If you're going to be one of God's people, you've got to be single-mindedly devoted. But is there more that we can glean from Ezra 4? And yes, I think there is. And we get to, uh, first, uh, to the first of these, the one that I had you scratch out, and now you're going to fill in another one. The first lesson for Christians from Ezra 4 is this. Beware of faith-compromising relationships. Beware of faith compromising relationships. It's easy for us as readers of Ezra here in chapter 4 to see the adversaries for what they are. We have the benefit of knowing the past history of their uh, uh, religious polytheism that plagued ancient Judea and Samaria. But in our current day, we don't always have the benefit of knowing whether someone who claims to be a Christian, claims to be a friend of the faith, or even just claims to have belief in God is actually faithful to the gospel of Jesus the way that we are. All too often, adversaries to the cause of Christ and to the work of the gospel appear as well-meaning, quote-unquote, friends of the faith. But in reality, they're happy to carry the name Christian or simply to speak the name of God only as a means of benefiting themselves personally at the expense of Christian conviction. We continue to see in so many areas of life, arenas of life, how easy it is to wear the name Christian as a shortcut to building trust. Politicians do it. I'm a Christian, don't you know? Vote for me. Politicians of every stripe do this. Businessmen and businesswomen do this. They'll, they'll slap a silver fish uh, emblem on the back of their work truck and, uh, or use it as part of their logo, maybe disingenuously to gain the, the trust of, of, of potential customers. People that we are romantically interested in will do it. Young men, young women, the boys and girls that you are interested in as potential mates may often claim to be Christian without having an actual devotion to Jesus in order to be in a relationship with you, to get something from you. 
It is not uncommon for people to call themselves Christian without actually having any conviction about following Christ in order to use that name to, to, as a backdoor to getting the trust of, of Christians who uh, can benefit something. Beware of faith-compromising relationships. Beware of so-called friends of the faith who stand to gain something from you other than the mutual worship of Christ. Teach yourself, Christian, that when someone says, hey, I'd like to help you with this cause. I'd, I'd like to help to build this thing for you. I'd like to be your boyfriend, be your girlfriend. After all, I'm a Christian too, right? There's no problem here. Teach yourself, Christian, to ask yourself in response to offers of help like this, to ask yourself and ask of them, what do you mean by that? When you say you're a Christian, what do you mean by that? Do you mean that you believe that Jesus Christ is the only Son of God? God in flesh, born of a virgin who lived a sinless life, died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins, rose from the dead to make us right with God, and that by faith in Him, entrusting our lives to Him, anyone can be forgiven of their sins and in a right relationship with God? Do you believe that Jesus is the only way to be right with God? Do you believe that He is returning again one day to call His church to Himself and all who trust in Him will live forever in eternity with Him? Do you believe that to follow Jesus means that, that, that you say no on a daily basis to sin, that you walk in repentance because when I say I'm a Christian that's what I mean so before I give you my vote or my business or my heart before I enter into a relationship that may compromise my faith I need to know what you mean when you say you're a Christian dear friends you may find that when you bother to ask these questions when you bother to define clearly what other people mean by Christian that they don't understand or believe at all what we do about Jesus and the gospel. And upon asking that question, you may discover that person beginning to act less like an ally and more like an adversary. So beware. Beware of faith-compromising relationships. That's application for you more personally. Here's application for us more corporately as a church, and that is this. To be wise about ministry partnerships. Be wise about ministry partnerships. Be gospel first in all your associations. Practicing a gospel awareness does not mean that we can never associate with. It doesn't mean that we can never work toward a common goal with someone who is not necessarily a follower of Christ. But being a Christian will shape and will inform the kinds of ministry partnerships that we as a church enter into. As a pastor, I get calls almost every single week from different groups or different charities that want our church to join them in interfaith or interdenominational sorts of social improvement work or social improvement efforts. Building houses, feeding the hungry, clothing the the, the poor, caring for the abandoned. And all of these are fine and good causes. I'm not saying anything bad about any of these. But we who are followers of Christ know that these needs, these physical needs are not the greatest need that every individual on this planet has. And that if we merely shelter the homeless and feed the hungry without giving them also the hope of the gospel of Jesus that we have, we have have then only met a small physical comfort and and ultimately ultimately neglected their deepest spiritual need. So as one one of your pastors, I feel that I have the responsibility to steward, to manage our ministry partnerships in a way that ensures that when our church serves alongside another group, whether it be a faith group or or a non-faith group, that we can be gospel first in all of our service. That the good news of Jesus Christ and our ability to freely share him as we are ministering to and serving people, that our ability to share the gospel is not compromised or hindered by the nature of the partnership that we are in. 
So this is why, as a church, we always look to, and we want to point you as members of our church to Southern Baptist uh, uh, denominational ministry efforts. Southern Baptist Disaster Relief, which goes into places that have been hit by natural disasters and seek to minister to the people whose houses have been destroyed or, or need a, 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 a place to take a shower because uh, they don't have running water or food uh, uh, to, to eat as their uh, towns are being rebuilt. Southern Baptist Disaster Relief does an excellent job of this and not just to meet the physical needs of people, but, in or, but meet physical needs in order to also share the gospel with them. This is why if young men and women... Or Old men and women are looking for theological education and training for ministry. We're going to recommend that you go to our Southern Baptist seminaries because we know that they believe the gospel the way that we do, that they're going to teach you to do ministry, gospel ministry, the same way that we do. It's why we point you to the International Mission Board and the North American Mission Board. If you want to go overseas or, or, or serve an unreached people group with the gospel somewhere in the world or plant a church here in North America, we, we, we seek to do all this not out of convenience because, uh, because it's just easier to do it with other Southern Baptist churches, but we do this not as a matter of convenience but as a matter of conviction, knowing that we share in common the most important thing, which is faithfulness to Christ and the true gospel being first in all that we do. We need to be wise about ministry partnerships. We need to be gospel first in all of our associations. Then third and finally, I think this is the last thing that we can learn to gain uh, or stand to gain, be shaped by from Ezra 4, and that is this, that we be unflinchingly faithful and obedient to God when we experience opposition. Be unflinchingly faithful and obedient to God when opposed. The most common problem posed by opposition to God's people and the gospel is not necessarily death or imprisonment, but rather discouragement to the point of unfaithfulness to the call that God has given. This was the case for the exiles who returned to Jerusalem in Ezra 4. They were discouraged by their adversaries to the point that the work on the temple ceased. It stopped. It was at a total standstill for over 15 years. We do thank God that the church of Jesus Christ is not systematically oppressed and opposed like his people were when they returned from exile or like the church is in many other hostile nations around the world. We thank God that we have a a, a great amount of liberty uh, in this nation to to execute the call of God upon our lives with freedom. Even now, an organization that follows a global state of persecution of Christians around the world, Open Doors USA, lists 50 countries where persecution of Christians is the worst around the world, where it is quite literally unsafe to be a Christian. And do you know what what the most common request by Christians in persecuted countries around the world from their brothers and sisters uh, in more free countries around the world is? Do you want to know what persecuted Christians want most from you and me today? Prayer for unflinching faithfulness. Not relief of persecution, not relief of opposition, but for faithfulness. Our brothers and sisters who worship Christ and declare the gospel in hard places today display for us a beautiful pattern to follow. Regardless of the fear that governments and other religious groups may impose upon them, they desire to be faithful, not to give up the call that God has put upon their lives, not to despise the gospel, but to continue to proclaim it boldly in hard places. Brothers and sisters, let us not then squander the liberties that we have in this place to declare the hope that we have in Jesus, both boldly and freely. Let us be encouraged when we experience discomfort for our faith. 
knowing that true Christians will always encounter friction as we love and live for Christ in the world. Beware of faith-compromising relationships, as would have been the case for these returning exiles. Be wise in your ministry partnerships. Be gospel first in all your associations. Be unflinchingly faithful in the face of opposition. We believe as a church that God has called us for the purpose of glorifying him in all the world by making disciples of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. We believe that every Christian has been saved by God, by his grace, through faith in Jesus for this purpose above all else. Church, if we live with ardent faithfulness to God in this, in this mission that he has given to us, we will find our fair share of adversaries in this life. There will be those who would like to use our church to further their own personal agendas. We must guard, against the, testimony, guard the testimony of the gospel against efforts to derail us from within. We will be tempted to lose sight of the harder work of declaring the hope of Jesus and leading people to grow as disciples of Christ by substituting lots of other easier, socially acceptable things in their place. We will be tempted to set aside evangelism and disciple-making for feeding the, the hungry and clothing the naked. We must have a laser-tight focus on the importance of being gospel-first in all of our ministry together. And dear Christian, we will be tempted to quit when we encounter friction for our faithfulness. We will be tempted to turn inward and look inward to protect what we have now, what we have here in this place. We will be tempted to build our own kingdom with impenetrable walls to guard our secluded Christian bubble. But friends, brothers and sisters, First Baptist West Albuquerque, we must reject this temptation as sinful and disobedient, knowing that Christ came to serve and not to be served. We must be unflinchingly faithful and obedient to the mission of glorifying God by pointing others to Jesus. Christ gave his life and rose again to build a church that would be faithful to make disciples of all nations. My brothers and sisters, may God cause that to be true of us. May we be unflinchingly faithful in the face of opposition for the glory of God and the salvation of the lost. Let us pray together.